Well, as we gather here on the 4th of July, it's nice to be around, as I'm sure you're experiencing, church family that first and foremost loves Christ and his church, but also who share a common love for our country, a country that has afforded us so many freedoms, so many opportunities to make a living, so many opportunities to raise a family, freedoms to worship God. Yet you'd have to be blind not to notice our steady moral decline. It seems year after year it just gets worse and worse, and it saddens me. You know, we just concluded a month where everywhere we turned, LGBT propaganda was just in our face. Rick and I chuckled at a satire site this week called the Babylon Bee, where an article was titled, With Pride Month Ending, Nation Excited Over Lust, Gluttony, and Envy Months. <laughs> it's kind of true. Scott and Renee were over the other night. Scott was looking up information on House Bill 1736, which is awaiting the governor's signature, and it greatly expands sex education in our schools all the way down to the kindergarten level. And you would be amazed at the topics they've outlined for each grade level. It's appalling. It's shocking. It's sad. Once on this downward spiral, God is our only hope. And let's pray for that revival. And let's pray that we do our part shining light into the world. And to do that, individual character matters. How many are familiar with the story of Francesco Scatino? Who is Francesco Scatino? Well, there's a picture of him, and if you're debating between a soccer player or an Italian actor, both of those choices would be wrong. He's actually the captain of a boat. More specifically, he was the captain of a luxury cruise liner called the Concordia. Maybe this a picture will ajoggle your memory. Yes, it sunk off the coast of Italy in 2012 when Captain Scatino deviated from his course and tried to get a better view of the European coastline. You guys remember this. And as a result of his actions, 4,000 people had to be evacuated and 32 people died. What made this so offensive in the eyes of the world was that Captain Scatino abandoned his ship while it was still full of passengers. He was one of the first guys off the boat when it started to sink, and that is a maritime no-no. That is what Francesco Scatino will be remembered for, abandoning his ship as captain. This revealed a glaring character defect in a man that he was able to hide for many years, and we can learn a lesson from him and others because character matters. And today we're going to look at some biblical versions of Scatino. Men who looked like they had it all together in the eyes of the world, but lacked godly character. There are many passages we could break down this morning concerning this subject. And since we're usually in the New Testament on Sunday mornings, I thought today we would choose something a little different, so I chose an Old Testament passage, chapter in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and it's not easy on the ears, yet 1 Samuel chapter 2 can be used for our learning and our correction. It can help us prepare for that day as the writer of Hebrew states, it is appointed for a man to die once, and then there is judgment. And on that day, we want to be rewarded with well done. We want to get a crown like Hannah, Samuel's mother, or like Samuel himself, who we'll be reading about today. Men and women of character. And speaking of character, do you know who Victoria Soto is? This is Victoria Lee Soto. And while you may not know her by name, you will almost surely remember what she did. She was killed in 2012 when a gunman entered Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut. And instead of abandoning her post, 
She hid, she was a teacher who hid her first grade students in closets and cabinets and confronted the gunmen and tried to tell them that her kids were at the other end of the school. But when six kids tried to escape, the gunman saw them, and she put herself in the line of fire between the gunman and her kids, and she was shot down. She was willing to sacrifice herself to save her students. What an amazing act of courage. What an amazing sacrifice. At the darkest moment of her life, her character shone brightly. And ironically, if I were to go back to the beginning of, chapter, of, of, of 2012, and I were to put up on the stage a captain of a boat, teacher of small children, side by side, and I told you that one of them would do something so great with their life, something so heroic that people would remember them for years, most of us probably would have chose, would choose the captain, but it wasn't. It's an example to us that your position in life, where you are right now, your gender, your age, all these things don't define you. That doesn't make you the person you are. Who and what you are, your character, is defined by your position in Christ. As scripture states in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. When we have trusted in Jesus, in Christ's sacrifice, we trust in his death and his burial and his resurrection for the forgiveness of sin, not only are we given the promise of eternal life, but we're beautiful things happen, right? We're adopted into God's family. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And that same God who created this whole world from absolutely nothing, this creative God begins a creative work in you. You start to become a new creation. And by the power of the scriptures and the Holy Spirit, Christians start to de develop godly character. And men of women of godly character is what our nation needs now, but they seem to be in short <clears throat> supply. Sometimes by putting the likes of Victoria Soto up there against the likes of Captain Scatina, we're able to see and appreciate what character is by comparing it to what it is not. And with that comparison in mind, I want you to watch how the author of 1 Samuel chapter 2 employs this very same technique in chapter 2. First Samuel. So let's look at that right now. The section opens up with a problem, and that problem is a glaring character defect. It reads, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. At first glance, some of us might think, okay, so what that a man named Eli has worthless sons? But remember, Eli was the high priest of Israel at this time, and it was his responsibility to approach God on behalf of the people, and perform sacrifices that were required in the law of Moses. And we know that those sacrifices in themselves were but a picture of the ultimate sacrifice that God would then give to us in the person of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Also in these opening chapters, Eli is not a young man raising a couple rambunctious teenagers, right? He's an old man. He's semi-retired, and he's passed along some of the duties to his sons, and their names are... Hophni and Phineas. And even though they were serving as priests and the world would look at them as godly men, they were described in Scripture as worthless. Now, as bad as that sounds, the translation worthless doesn't even really begin to dig deep to their character issues. In Hebrew, that phrase reads, the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. 
And that carries with it an idea of ungodly, wicked, evil. It's used over 25 times in the Old Testament, and it always describes very, very bad, the worst of the worst people. These are men of ungodly character, and they happen to be serving as priests of God. And the rest of verse 12, if you remember, said they did not even know the Lord. Let's think about that for a minute. What does that mean? Let's make sure we understand it, because they weren't completely ignorant. If you asked Hophni and Phinehas about Father Abraham, about the Exodus, they would surely be able to tell you that. They weren't ignorant of that. They certainly knew enough about their priestly duties, as we're going to see, to take advantage of the people. But what that means is that they had no relationship with the Lord. They did not know the Lord, and as a result of that, their character suffered. They lacked godly character. The rest of chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, Samuel will read like an indictment against them, and it's in the word of God for a reason. These men are our examples, so we don't lust after evil things as they did. Hophni and Phinehas are the Scatinos of the world, ancient examples of what not to do. And before we read about their actions, let's remind ourselves that we too live in a very dark culture, one where everyone seems to be doing what's right in their own eyes. And I know the tendency is to complain about the world, and yes, it is evil, and I even complained about it a little bit ago. But we have to really walk out of here this morning knowing that God is more concerned about your character and my character. He's more concerned that you honor and trust him and that I Sadly, going to church or youth group or a Bible study does not make someone a Christian. Once more, naming someone as your pastor or giving them title elder or deacon does not make them a man of God. Godly character begins with your relationship with the Lord, and it grows over time as we submit to what we read in his word and understand his will. And sure, Hophni and Phinehas were able to fake it for a while like many Christians around the world but in the words of Moses in Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. And if you doubt me, just watch as our story unfolds. If you're wondering what Hophni and Phinehas did that were so bad, let's continue in verse 13 as it reads. And this was the custom of the priests with the people. When anyone was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was cooking with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or cauldron or pot. Everything that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. They did so in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take cooked meat from you only raw. Now, I realize that this might not seem like a big deal to you or I because we don't view meat like they did. It's not like currency and very valuable resource commodity but our food is still valuable to us i mean imagine a little bit later if you're grilling a steak for the fourth of july and and it's just about done and your neighbor hops your fence with a three-pronged fork and grabs it right off your grill i mean you wouldn't be too happy about that would you the priest's duty was clearly spelled out in the law and they were abusing their position for example check this out here's what they were supposed to be doing deuteronomy 18.3 it says, now this shall be the priest's portion from the people. From those who offer a sacrifice, either an ox or a sheep, they shall give the priest the shoulder, the two cheeks, the stomach, period. 
According to God's word, that's the going rate for a sacrifice. A shoulder, two cheeks, and a stomach. So for example, Samuel's family, when they went to the tabernacle to give a sacrifice to the Lord, they would burn the best parts. The priest would come, and they would get the priest their portion, and the family would eat the rest. But in this case, we're dealing with greedy priests. They weren't satisfied with their portion. So instead, in verse 15 that we just read, sometimes while the sacrifice is being laid on the altar, the very best for God, the priest would say, why, why should God get that? I deserve that. And they would come and grab it right off the altar. They didn't care about God. They didn't care about their neighbor. They were greedy, gluttonous. They only cared about themselves. Sadly, the priests of God were supposed to be the ones going down with the ship, but they were the first ones to jump off. So my question is, what would you have done if this happened to you? Let's say you're in this position. How would you have reacted? Would you have challenged the priest? Would you say, hey, wait a minute, don't do that? Let's see an example of that in verse 16. In verse 16 we read, and if the man said to him, the priest, hey, they must burn the fat first, then take as much as you desire. Then he would say, the priest would say, no, but you must give it to me now. And if not, I'm taking it by force. And can you believe that? They weren't just greedy. They were violent. I mean, this, this reads like ancient Israelite organized crime here. Right? What, what hypocrites. And as far as they knew, they got away with it. But in verse 17, we, we read that God will not be mocked. And so the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord disrespectfully. These men forgot who they were dealing with, and who knows? Maybe some of us here today in our day-to-day -day lives have also forgotten God. But God is all-seeing and all-knowing and all-present, and there's no place to run from him and no place to hide, and he's righteous, and he always brings about his perfect justice in his time. And this sin of greed and violence was a great offense in the sight of the Lord. And before we move on, there's two things that I want you to appreciate about what we just read. You see the word, Eric, if you could put that back up there. The word great is underlined, or it's actually, it's, it's, it's bolded. That word in Hebrew, great, is pronounced gadol. Okay, let's all say that together. Gadol. One more time. Gadol. All right. And then right after that, you see where it says great, gadol, before the Lord. Remember that. Literally, that means before the Lord means in God's face, in his presence. It will be beneficial to note when we compare these two men with Samuel, which we'll do right now, verse 18. Now Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod, and his mother would make for him a little robe and bring it up to him from year to year when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Let's look at the screen once again. An ephod, um, do we have a picture of the ephod? It's okay. There you go. The ephod was a special garment worn by the high priest of Israel. And I realize this is obviously strange to us, but, you know, shirt and ties would be strange to them. The picture shows us how he would have dressed, and, and the colorful apron that he put on, those jewels, that's the ephod, and it goes over his priestly robe. And hopefully this will give you a, a little image of, of, of what Samuel was wearing is what we just read, that his mom would make him a robe and come up every year. And this passage is not there so we can say, oh, look, honey, there's a little boy at the tabernacle this year dressed like a high priest. How totes the doors. Okay? <laughs> this, 
That's not why it's there. <laughs> this is written so we shake our heads and say, how is it that a young child, Samuel, has more character than two grown men? The answer is in Proverbs 20.11. It's by his deeds that a boy distinguishes himself if his conduct is pure and right. The point is that Samuel is being contrasted with Hophni and Phinehas, and just in case there's any doubt of the author's intent, you see that phrase in verse 18, ministering before the Lord? That's exactly the same phrase we just read in verse 17. The comparison is that when Hophni and Phinehas were committing great sin before the Lord, Samuel is ministering before the Lord obvious the contrast so obvious that we have to take this intent of the author and say hey life let me take an inventory of my life what am I doing before the Lord your character matters let's move on to verse 20 and 21 then Eli would bless bless Elkanah that's Samuel's father and his wife Hannah and say, may the Lord give you children from this woman in place of the one she requested of the Lord. And they went to their own home. The Lord indeed visited Hannah, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew up before the Lord. During this annual sacrifice process we're talking about, since Hannah gave Samuel to the Lord, Eli would bless them and pray that God would give them more children to replace Samuel. And we just read that she gave birth to three sons and two daughters blessing to be sure from God. And this is the last time we read about Hannah in this story, a great woman of character. Her godly character, we're talking about comparing and contrasting today, her godly character stands in contrast to Eli in the same way Samuel is contrasted with Hophni and Phinehas. Again, I bet if we were to go back before this was written, however, and I were to set Hannah up here on a stage and Eli, and I was to say, that one of these two is going to be used by God to start the greatest revival in Israel's history, and the other was basically going to be worthless, most people would pick the priest to do something great and then nobody from nowhere to be the worthless one. But that's not the case with our sovereign Lord. So while this is the last time we read Hannah's name in all of Scripture, like Victoria Soto, her godly character and faithfulness changed the world forever. And that's the hardest part about being a Christian, is sometimes we're called on to do great things for God, but most of the time, Christianity just boils, just comes down, just boils down to being faithful with the little things. Something Hophni and Phinehas seemed incapable of, as verse 22 explains. Now, Eli was very I'll just put another very in there, very old. And he heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and that they slept with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Do you realize what an indictment this is against their character? We can add sexual immorality to their growing list of vices. And remember, God put Israel in the land to be a light to the surrounding nations, a light in contrast to darkness. Everything about the Hebrew people was supposed to be different, right? What they ate, different. How they dressed, different. How they lived, different. So they could stand out and be a light to the surrounding nations. Yet here in 1 Samuel chapter 2, if a Canaanite pagan showed up at the tabernacle, they would walk away saying, wow, 
They've got violence. They've got greed. They've got gluttony. They've got prostitution. Hey, these Israelites are just like us. And our prayer and desire should be that the world could never say that about Chatham Christian Church or about anyone individually here today. Our godly character has to set us apart in our nation today. In a pagan culture, prostitution seemed to be a part of worship. We read about it all the time, but God's people were not supposed to be involved with that. But here the priests of Israel were acting like pagans. Until Eli, being very old, decides, hey, maybe I should mention something about this to my kids, right? So in verse 23, we read, so he says to them, why are you doing such things as these? The evil things that I hear from all these people. No, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one person sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a person sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. When the evil character of his sons becomes public, Eli finally addresses it, although it should have been done immediately. Right? If you go back later this afternoon and read chapter 1, you will see that Eli has a chair right next to the tent of meetings, right next to the tabernacle. We just read Hophni and Phinehas. That's where they picked up women. So he knew about this for a long time. He finally speaks up. But their hearts are hard, and that's sad. They would not listen to the voice of their father. This reminds me a little bit of Lot in Genesis. Lot tried to warn his daughters and the daughters, his future son-in-laws, about the upcoming destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you read in Genesis, you'll see, Genesis, you'll see that they thought Lot was joking. It's likely that Hophni and Phinehas had a similar reaction to Eli. And do you know why? One of my early, early classes at Lincoln focused on early church fathers like Polycarp or Clement of Rome and moved forward in history, including a variety of theologians they introduced us to. And one was the Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard. In one of his writings, it's actually a parable, if you will, but it's called The Clown, and it goes like this. Once upon a time, a large, <clears throat> let me start over. Once upon a time, a large crowd gathered to watch a show in a theater. As the curtain was about to go up, a fire broke out backstage. The actors did everything they could to put out the blaze, but it spread too quickly, so they all evacuated. And they sent out one man to warn the audience, but this man was dressed like a clown. So as the clown came running out from behind the curtain, he yelled, fire, fire, run for your life. Get out of the building as quick as you can. The crowd cheered and applauded. The louder the clown screamed, seriously, you need to leave now. The louder the crowd applauded, and no one ever left the building. Do you know why the crowd never left? Because no one is going to take a clown seriously. Lot, Eli, character matters. And that's the point. Before we can tell anyone that Jesus is the only way to heaven, remember that, that no one's going to listen to a clown whose life reeks of sexual immorality or greed or covetousness or hypocrisy. Now, let's compare that to Samuel in verse 26. Now, the boy Samuel was continuing to grow and to, 
to grow and to be in favor both with the Lord and with people. So just on the surface, this young boy Samuel provides a powerful contrast between Hophni and Phinehas. But there's two things we would miss if we go through this too quickly, so let's just slow down a bit. And Erica, put that back up there if you don't mind. Continuing to grow or becoming great, some translations might say. You, you don't want to know what that word is? Gadol. Now, where have we heard that before? Yes, in verse 17. Hophni and Phinehas were sinning Gadol greatly in the sight of the Lord. Why, Samuel is walking greatly in the sight of the Lord. What a contrast. Second, that phrase that describes Samuel as a child, does that remind you about anyone else, how he was described? Years later, when the New Testament writer Luke describes the childhood of Jesus in chapter 2 of his gospel, and this is found in Luke 2.52, it reads, And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and people. Now, similar phrasing used to describe Samuel and Jesus during their childhood years. It's a good thing. Isn't, isn't it a good thing if we remind people of Jesus? Of course it is. And it's not saying here that Samuel was perfect, but it is saying that Samuel was maturing in the Lord and Christ-likeness means we begin to act and mature and act like children of God. If that's your desire to be a child of God, to act like one, then I can guarantee you one thing, and everyone in this room knows this, but I can guarantee you this. The people you resemble most are going to be the ones you spend the most time with. So in our very dark, in our very busy culture, I'm challenging you this morning, spend time with God, read his word, pray, worship, serve, increase in stature and favor with the Lord and with men, because you will reap what you sow. And this is how the chapter ends. It closes with a reaping. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Let's just stop there just for a quick second, then I'll get back and I'll read it. Man of God. First, a man of God in the Old Testament is a term for a prophet. Sometimes we don't know their names, man of God. Sometimes we do. Samuel is a prophet. But they're entrusted with the message from God. And often, that's not really an enviable position because we know the fate of many of the prophets. Second, the man of God, the prophet here, doesn't even bother with Hophni and Phinehas. No, look where he goes. To Eli. And you might say, why would you do that? It's Hophni and Phinehas who are doing really the bad stuff here, right? Well, the answer is that Eli allowed that sin to occur. He knew it was there, as we stated earlier, and he allowed it to continue. As Paul would later explain in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, do you not know a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Translation, sin spreads. Third quick point about the man of God throughout the Old Testament is that when we see that, that, that wording used, it usually is going to fo what follows is a pronouncement of judgment. This isn't going to be good news. And if you're wondering how long Hophni and Phinehas can be so evil and not pay the consequences, well, their time is about up. God will not be mocked. So let's finish by reading the rest of the chapter. We're going to give this man of God do and everything he says here and just finish a chapter out. Bear with me as I do that. And let's take some points home with us for application as well. He says, this is what the Lord God says. Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, in bondage, in Pharaoh's house, to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose from 
Choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me. And did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why are you showing contempt for my sacrifice and my offering, which I commanded for my dwelling? And why are you honoring your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father was to walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor and those who despise me will be insignificant. Behold, the days are coming when I will eliminate your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. And you will look at distress, my dwelling, in spite of all the good that I do for Israel, and there will never be an old man in your house. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar, so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grieve. And all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. And this will be the sign to which you to which will come in regard will come in regard to your two sons, Hophni and Phineas. On the same day, both of them will die. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who will do according to what is in my heart and my soul, and I will build him an enduring house, and he will walk before my anointed always. And everyone who is left in your house will come to bow down to him for a silver coin or a loaf of bread and say, please assign, to, please, please assign me to one of the priest's offices so I may eat a piece of bread. And wow, if that sounds harsh, just remember that God is just. Eli and his sons were given a lot. The man of God makes that clear in the very opening of his speech when he says, God chose you to be priests and God provided for you, but that wasn't enough for them. They weren't content with that. Instead, they used their position for their own personal gain and their character dishonored the Lord until the Lord said, that's enough. Our behavior has consequences. In the God-human relationship, God does not need us. We need him. In this situation, the Lord did not tolerate the behavior of someone who claimed to be a child of God but lives like a child of Belial. Because as the man of God stated, those who honor the Lord will be honored and those who despise him will be lightly esteemed. We need to honor God with our character. So the man of God just warned Eli, listen, I've got a message from God. Judgment is coming. The punishment will fit the crime. You greedy, gluttonous priests, you're going to go hungry while the rest of Israel eats. You hypocrites, you're going to be exposed and removed. For the priests who use violence, violence will come upon you. Hophni and Phinehas will both die on the same day. The role of priests will be forfeited. But my last question to you this morning is this. What would anyone would just a shred of character do if that message was delivered to them? What would you do if that message was delivered to you? Most people with just any amount of spiritual sensitivity would repent. They would clean house. They would change their ways. They would stop taking food off the altar. They would stop abusing women at the gate. They would stop with the immorality. They would start honoring God. God is merciful and slow to anger. But you know what Eli and his sons did? 
nothing. If you read on into the next chapter, their lives seem to move on just as if nothing happened. I don't know why. Maybe they didn't believe this prophet, this man of God. Just business as usual for them until judgment day comes. Ironically, this speech by the man of God had the same impact on Eli that Eli's speech had upon his sons. People can listen to warnings all day long about bad character, but some just never see God, never have that desire to change. And so this is just simply the point where we stop and we ask, can the same thing be happening to any of us? Forget the choices for a minute about Eli and Hophni and Phinehas and forget all that and just answer one question. What impact does 1 Samuel chapter 2 have on your life? Because if I can leave you with just one thought today, it's clear in Scripture that character matters. And as we approach the table, let's think about our character. And I'm sure that there are things that we're all battling. And acknowledge those sins, I urge you. Acknowledge them before the Lord. He's perfectly aware of them. Repent and change. Seek to honor him with your own life rather than to satisfy your own lusts like Hophni and Phinehas. Let's spend time with our Lord this week to draw closer to him. And let's stand this morning and let's sing together. Take time to be holy. We're going to sing verses 1, 2, and 4.